Psalms chapter number 24 tonight, and I want you to keep your Bibles close. We always uh, ought to be keeping our Bibles close. Somebody say amen to that, but we're going to be doing a little bit of running around the Bible tonight, and so I want you to have them close. That way you can see these verses. I am normally more of an expository preacher than I'm going to be tonight. What I mean by that is normally we find a passage and dig in. But tonight I'm going to do something very uncharacteristic for me. I want us to follow a strain of thought through the Word of God. And I don't even really know that I'd say I'm going to preach to you tonight. I'm going to exhort you a little bit. I hope that's okay. And if you don't know what the word exhort means, don't get nervous. Amen. It's not a medical term or anything. I want to encourage you a little bit from the Word of God. Psalms chapter 24, and I'd like to read just the first verse, and then we'll pray. The Word of God says that the earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. That was so short. Let's read it once more, okay? The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for this opportunity to be in your house, and I pray that you bless your word that you'd use it in the hearts and minds of your people, Lord. I thank you for those that are gathered here. Thank you, Lord, for the missionary and his family, Lord, for our home folk. And God, just what a blessing it is to be able to gather in this place and worship you. Help us to be obedient to your word tonight. May it feed us and may it change us for your glory. Lord, we love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Psalms chapter 24 and verse number 1 is probably a very familiar verse to most of us. I know it was for me, and I would bet that it was for you. In fact, when we started to read it, probably most of you could have finished quoting it, even if your Bible had been closed. And the thing that features so prominently in this verse is the notion of the ownership by the Lord of all things. We are told that the earth is the Lord's. It belongs to Him. Uh, it is His jurisdiction. It is His property. It belongs to Him. It's part of the reason that sort of the uh, you know, eco-conservationist uh, cult religion that is so prominent in uh, the world today is so misguided. Uh, people treat it as though we are the earth's. No, friend, uh, the earth's is the Lord's, amen? And we are the Lord. We don't belong to the earth. The earth belongs to the Lord. It is His, and likewise we belong unto Him. And while I do believe we are to be stewards of God's creation, I believe that's perfectly appropriate and biblical, the notion that it is our responsibility uh, to keep the world spinning, to keep the oceans wet, the deserts dry, is uh, humanistic in nature. In fact, it is God's jurisdiction. It is God's responsibility. He has promised in His immutable Word uh, that uh, seed time and sowing and harvesting would continue as long as the world exists. Uh, in other words, that is directly within the realm of God's authority. But I'm interested particularly in that little three-word phrase that modifies the noun here, that characterizes it. It says that the earth is the Lord's. This is not the only time that you'll find this phrase in the Bible. You can go several other places in the Word of God, and we will tonight, and look at some other things that belong to the Lord. Now, when we're talking about ownership, we're talking about a number of different things. One, we're talking about prerogative. If a person owns something, then what they do with it is their prerogative. This is something that is lost on uh, our, our society today, and particularly upon our government that feels as though it's entitled uh, to things that it did not create, that it did not produce. The government, I'm just going, I said I won't go preach, I'll just preach for a second now, and then I'm going to exhort. The government's never created anything. It can't create things. 
Uh, the uh, private industry creates things. All the government can do is take those things from private industry and then distribute them however that they see fit. Uh, but there are some today that would like you to believe that, uh, you know, the uh, means of production ought to belong to the government. Let me say this, even if we lived in a socialist society, which we are rapidly speeding towards, it still wouldn't mean that the government rightfully owns the means of production. In other words, even if they had control of the means of production, that don't mean they actually own it. It doesn't mean that it is their right to it. Uh, they would have come by it by way of force and by way of theft, uh, but it still wouldn't be theirs by right. Well, whose would it be? Well, the people that had earned it, the people that had labored for it, the people that had invested in it. Uh, so in other words, ownership denotes prerogative. If you own something, you don't have the right to say what you do with it and how you use it and how you spend it. I believe that is a biblical principle, not merely a uh, democratic principle uh, or even a principle uh, that is constitutional. Constitution may acknowledge it, recognize it, and in a civil way uh, enshrine it, but it's a biblical principle uh, that a man's labor belongs to himself. So when we talk about uh, ownership, we're talking about prerogative. But then I would say this, that inasmuch as we're talking about the owning of sentient uh, people, creatures, individuals that have will and have volition, I would say that when we talk about ownership, we we're talking about allegiance being due unto that owner. In other words, if you belong to somebody, you have a responsibility to be loyal to them. Uh, just like a king has with his subjects. You have a responsibility unto them. And then I would say this, that we have a responsibility to surrender ourselves unto the Lord because He owns us. He has the right. If He's going to have prerogative in our life, then we have to surrender and submit ourselves unto Him. So what does the Bible say that the Lord owns? Well, I think that even this first verse that we've read in Psalms 24 would be enough to tell us that the quick answer would be everything. There's nothing you'll see that don't belong to it. And yet the Bible goes out of its way to tell us on several occasions explicitly things that belong to the Lord. And I think when the Holy Ghost takes note of something, I think we likewise should take note of it. So I want you to notice a few things tonight. The first really echoes what we've read in Psalms 24. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter number 10 tonight. Deuteronomy chapter number 10. If you know our student of the Bible, you know that the book of Deuteronomy is the repetition of the law. Uh, just before the uh, children of Israel... At the close of Moses' life, before he was uh, getting ready uh, to die, uh, he was tasked by the Lord with reading to them the law as it had been given over to rehearse it into their ears. And so Moses, speaking to the children of Israel, makes this statement in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 14. He says, Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens is the Lord's thy God, the earth also and with all that therein is. Let me say number one tonight, our world is the Lord's. Everything you see around you belongs by right to the Lord. Now you say, well, preacher, why is that? Well, the same reason a man has a right to the fruits of his own labor, because a, a man in his labor creates something. Uh, he is the creator of it, and therefore he has the prerogative over it. Well, everything you see around you, the Lord created. Now somebody's going to say, well, preacher, there are things somebody crafted this pulpit and somebody uh, crafted this pew and somebody built this building. That's absolutely correct. Uh, but on the molecular level, the matter itself was created by God. Uh, we uh, know from the laws of thermodynamics that uh, matter can neither be created nor destroyed. Uh, 
Uh, God created all things, and all mankind's been doing ever since then is just pushing atoms around in different formations, however they may find the ability to do so. But everything you see, it belongs to the Lord. Now, what does that include? Well, notice number one tonight, it includes the celestial realm. The Bible says that the heaven belongs to the Lord. Now, as you can tell in our text, uh, there is more than just one heaven. Now, there's not seven of them. The Roman Catholic dogma doesn't have anything to do with the idea of gradations of, uh, of bliss or reward before God. But the Bible describes for us three different heavens. Uh, there is the heaven, meaning the firmament, that which we can see with the naked eye, the sky above us. Then there are the heavens, which is uh, the... Uh, uh, how do I want to say this? I'm just going to say outer space. It's probably a better way to say that. The galactic realm, let's call it that, amen. I don't know if that's an appropriate way to say it. And then there is heaven in the sense of the abode of God. So those are the three heavens. What we learn from this text is that the celestial realm, meaning the firmament, and uh, space, as we would call it, belongs to the Lord. Now you're going to say, well, preacher, is, is that significant? Sure it is when you understand the vastness of it. When you understand that God has measured out the universe in the span of His hand and there's not a single star. Uh, we live here in East Tennessee and you know I live out in the country and we don't have quite as much light pollution. But if you go places in this country, particularly out west where there's not as much light pollution and when uh, there's not as much pollution in the air, it is, uh, it is amazing to see the vast number of stars in the heavens. And those are only what we can behold with the naked eye. Uh, you even look at something that to us is so vast and amazing as our sun, such a bright star, such a large star, and it is minuscule compared to other bodies within the heavens. Things that uh, nobody except God and His angels can ever even look upon, but He created them for His own glory and for His own majesty. Mankind may seek to stake out new territory elsewhere in our galaxy. I don't know whether God will ever permit that or not. i got serious questions if we went to the moon. Somebody say amen to that. No, I believe we went to the moon, but some of y'all don't. So that's I figure I'll say it make you feel better. Amen. But uh, irrespective of where mankind may plant a flag across this galaxy, rest assured that every bit of it belongs to God. He owns the celestial realm. It says that He owns the earth also. That means He owns the terrestrial realm. There's not a single, I, I, we're living in a day now where the notion of owning land, particularly anything above, I don't know, like a one hundredth of an acre, is quickly and rapidly disappearing for a vast majority of young people. I think a lot of older people that have been blessed to have their homes for many, many uh, decades would be uh, amazed and shocked to learn what a barrier it is for young people to own anything beyond something to park their car on. But uh, rest assured that whatever vast swaths that man may lay his authority and his ownership on, at the end of the day, every bit of it belongs to God. Uh, now you say, well, preacher, how do you know that? Because he has the right to displace anyone from any place he chooses anytime he sees fit. And he can do so by snuffing their life out in a moment. Uh, this world, it may seem as though it is the domain of the devil. And I understand he is the God of this world. But he has permitted a, a certain amount of leash to uh, rule and to wreck and to ruin this world. But rest assured, he may be the God of this world but our God, the God of the Bible, sits on the circle of the earth. And He is in control of all things. It is disheartening sometimes to see the wickedness in the world around us. 
we get to believing somehow that this world is outside of the realm of God's jurisdiction. But understand, it is only the providence of God that permits man whatever rebellion that mankind exhibits. If God should so choose, He could in a moment bring and reign in all of this world under His authority. And one day He will do that very thing. The celestial realm, the terrestrial realm. But it also says this, not just the heaven, but it says the heaven of heaven. Now, what is the heaven of heavens? Well, it speaks of heavens, plural. So that would denote the firmament and then what we would call space. So what then would be the heaven above those? Well, it would be, we could say, the spiritual realm, which is under God's ownership and God's authority. Now, this seems almost uh, simplistic in nature. But it's amazing how many people think they can get into God's heaven on their terms and not recognizing that heaven is indeed God's heaven. He's the one that holds the jurisdiction and the authority over heaven and the entirety of the spiritual realm, though it may be something that sometimes we foolishly choose to disregard uh, in our day-to-day life. Recognize that, number one, it is real. It does exist. Though Though the spiritual realm is not tangible, that does not mean it is not real. Somebody say amen to that. You men better say amen to that because your love with your uh, spouse is not tangible, but it better be real, right? Uh, There are plenty of things in this world that are not tangible, but they are real. We can't lay hands on them, uh, but it is real. In the spiritual realm, likewise, it may not be something we can lay hands upon, but according to the record of God's Word, it is indeed real. And as we examine the happenings of life, it becomes glaringly apparent to us uh, how effective and effectual and meaningful the things that take place in the spiritual realm are. The weapons of our warfare truly uh, are not carnal, but are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. In other words, uh, we uh, battle not, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. But in all of that spiritual warfare, we recognize that the spiritual realm is under the jurisdiction of God. Daniel chapter 10 explains this clearly to us, and I'll let you read it in your own time that uh, God has ultimate authority in the spiritual realm. But then notice what it says at the end of chapter uh, 10, verse 14 of the book of Deuteronomy. It says, Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens is the Lord's thy God, the earth also with all that therein is. Now, what does God mean when he says that? Maze Jackson used to say that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills and the hills and the taters in the hill. Amen. But uh, I don't know, although I do believe every potato is under the ownership and jurisdiction of God, I don't know that that's what the Bible's talking about here. What does it mean when it says all that therein is? Well, in Psalms 24.1, what we took as our text tonight, we have an explanation of what that means. It says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. While it is true that everything of plant life, mineral life, animal life does all indeed belong to God, I think the emphasis that is found here in Deuteronomy 10.14 is of the individuals that live in this world and that belong to God. In other words, every single person, they may not all be God's child, but they're all God's creation. And God has a level of authority over their lives, whether they acknowledge it, whether they recognize it or not. That is uh, especially true for your life and mine as saved individuals. But recognize even beyond that application that every single person in this world has a certain fealty that they owe to God, a certain loyalty that is due unto God. That's why one day every knee's going to bow, every tongue's going to confess, because He owns every single one of them. 
We see this uh, idea vividly in the Old Testament, particularly as it regards uh, slavery in the land of Israel. One of the provisions that God made regarding Hebrew slaves was that they could not be kept uh, any more than six years. And in the seventh year, they go out free. And the reason that God gave uh, to uh, Moses for that was he said, because I bought them out of Egypt and they belong to me. They don't belong to anyone else. They belong to me. Well, this could be said really of every single individual. He's our creator, so we belong to him. Mankind may rail against God, shake his fist at God, but sooner or later he's going to have to reckon with God, for God owns him. He is bought with a price and he belongs unto the Lord. So in Deuteronomy 10.14 we see that our world is the Lord's. Where else can we find this phrase? Turn over to Leviticus chapter 27 with me. Leviticus chapter 27 We have heard Moses speaking to the children of Israel, but in the book of Leviticus we find the Lord speaking to the priests and the Levites. And uh, the entirety of the book of Leviticus is rich with beautiful truth regarding the sacrifice of Christ and the fullness of uh, of His uh, payment for our sin debt, uh, the standing that we have to worship God uh, in the person of Jesus Christ. But I want you to notice something practical in Leviticus 27. Look down at verse 26. Uh, In speaking to the priests and Levites, this is what the Lord said. He said, only the firstling of the beasts, which should be the Lord's firstling, no man shall sanctify. Whether it be ox or sheep, it is the Lord's. In other words, as they were giving their sacrifices, God said the firstling of anything that's born is to be given unto me. The first animal, the firstborn, of anything that is born is to be given unto me of all the beasts of the field. Look down in verse 30. We find another thought here. It says, all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy unto the Lord. We could say this, number one, our world is the Lord's. But number two, our wealth is the Lord's. That's what it says. It is the Lord's. It is the Lord's. Now, what does this imply to us? Well, if everything I own belongs to God, and let me just go ahead and say, everything I own belongs to God. He may not ask for all of it, but it all belongs to Him. Everything you own belongs to the Lord. You might say, well, preacher, I worked real hard and I earned that. And that might be a fair statement regarding your standing in the world at large and the possession of your Goods, But as it regards God, even that is no excuse to claim that what we have belongs to us and not to God. For the means wherewith we were able to procure that came from God in the first place. The health to do it, the ability to do it, the strength to do it, the opportunity to do it. I found this, that once a man wraps his mind around the fact that everything he's got is God's, he usually uh, finds the wherewithal to be a cheerful giver unto the Lord. The people that I know that are begrudging about giving unto the Lord, uh, invariably their spirit and attitude is that they're giving God something that belongs to them. And that's why they don't want to give to the Lord. The sooner you realize that you can't give God something that belongs to you because everything that belongs to you belongs to Him in the first place, you'll feel a lot better about giving unto the Lord because here's what you'll recognize. You're not giving the Lord something that's yours. You're just giving Him back something that's His. What does this suggest to us, our verse before us? Well, number one, because our wealth is the Lord's, therefore He deserves the first. The first. He should be the priority in our giving, in our budgeting of our life. I've got a budget. I, sometimes you'd know it and sometimes you wouldn't. But I do have one in my 
personal life, and I trust and hope that you do too. I believe there's a biblical uh, premise and precedent for the idea of budgeting and uh, seeing to what needs may arise at a later time in your life. But when you have a budget in your home, there is invariably a priority list that comes along with it. Uh, there are certain things that are high on the priority list, you know, things like candy bars and ice cream and things like that, and things that really are inconsequential, you know, things like utilities and, uh, you know, mortgages and things like that. We, we must all have a priority list in our life. Can I ask you this? Where does God rest in that priority list? There are a great many of us that are willing to give God whatever's left. If that's a lot, let it be a lot. If it's a little, let it be a little but we're just willing to give him whatever's left. This is completely backwards from what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that you are to determine what God would expect of you and give that first unto God. Uh, otherwise, you know what you're giving him? Your table scraps. Your leftovers. And there are a great many people that that's all they ever give him. They've mowed through every other uh, conceivable expenditure in their uh, month and then whatever's left, they say, well, I guess I'll just give that to God. Uh, again, that's the spirit and attitude of somebody that doesn't recognize the ownership of the Lord. If you recognize the ownership of the Lord, you'd recognize that you have to pay Him first because it's His in the first place. If you were uh, looking across the realm of your finances and determining where the priorities would lie in your home, you would probably place a higher priority on things you have financed. You know why? Because your notion is that I owe this money to these individuals and they own, therefore, what I earn until I pay that back. Well, can I say this as regards God? He owns everything we have, every bit of it. And therefore, He deserves the first. We shouldn't give Him what's left over. We should give Him the first. Turn with me back to chapter 3 of the book of Leviticus. I want you to notice another one. Very similar, very much in the same vein, but I want you to notice it. Verse number 16 of Leviticus chapter 3, it says, The priest shall burn them, talking about sacrifices, shall burn them upon the altar. It is the food of the offering made by fire for a sweet savor. And then it says this, all the fat is the Lord's. All the fat is the Lord's. What does it mean when it says this? Well, we, uh, and we was talking about this a while back. I can't remember where we was or what we was talking about. We was talking about cuts of meat, cuts of steak was what we were talking about. And I'm not going to get into a big thing because I'm, I am resigned that I'm right about this. And I really, you can have any opinion you want and that's fine, but you're going to be wrong if it's different than mine about this. I'm not going to budge on this. That the best cut of steak that exists in the world, invariably, is a ribeye. Thank you, Linda. I always knew you was a spiritual one. I always knew you was more spiritual than they said, Linda. The ribeye is the absolute best. Now listen, if, if you want to eat a sirloin steak, that's fine. That's your prerogative. Go ahead, put on your nice pretty dress and your makeup and go order your sirloin. That's fine. But, but, uh, we all understand that a ribeye is really the best cut of meat. And the reason why is because it has the fat on it. Yes. Yes, me too. Uh, that same reason prime rib is a good cut of meat, uh, is because it's got that big old piece of fat on there. It's the, it's the richest. It's the most flavorful. It's the most savory part of the entire cut of meat. And so it is associated, uh, not only in my mind, but evidently in God's mind as well, with the best part of a steak. The best part of a cut of meat. And so I would say this, if everything I have belongs to the Lord, therefore, number one, He deserves the first. Number two, He deserves the best. 
He deserves the best of whatever I can give him. Now, we understand that for the most part, money, monetarily speaking, ain't none of our money really worth anything and it's only getting worth less money day by day. But as regards our time and as regards our energies and as regards our talents, there is very often a marked and tragic difference between what we will give to the world and what we'll give to God. Oftentimes we'll give the world the best of our energies and give God what's left over. Oftentimes we'll give our own recreation and leisure the best of our energies and attention and then only give God whatever is left over. If we do that, number one, we'll be judged for it. God will deal with us one day. But number two, we're merely betraying the fact that our wealth and our time and our energy does not really, in our mind at least, it does not belong to Him. If it belongs to Him, we're going to give Him the very best that we possibly can. Turn with me now to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. Our world is the Lord's. Our wealth is the Lord's. But here we find Moses once again speaking to the children of Israel. Exodus chapter 12 is, of course, the chapter that deals with the institution of the Passover. Uh, Now, you're probably a student enough of the Bible, know what the Passover is. When the children of Israel were in bondage in Egypt, God delivered them out with a high hand and brought them out under the leadership of Moses. He did so through the ten plagues that he that he plagued Egypt with, the last of which, of course, was uh, the death angel passing over and slaying all the firstborn of the land. And God made provision for the children of Israel that they could escape this. Uh, And by the way, it's interesting, all the other plagues that were given, the Jews were de facto exempt from those things. Uh, when there was darkness in Egypt, there was light in Goshen. When there were frogs in Egypt, Brother Ken, there were no frogs in Goshen. But then when it came down to the Passover, everybody was swept up under the plague and curse of the Passover. Uh, because as regards a man's sin debt and his standing with God, it's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. And so God made provision. And by the way, the Egyptians could have implemented this if they had chosen to. But God said to the children of Israel, you will not de facto be exempt from this plague, but rather the only way you can be exempt is you have to go out and take a lamb, a perfect lamb of the flock, and you have to slay it. You have to take the blood and you have to spread it upon the lentils and posts of the door. And when the death angel passes over, if he sees the blood, he will pass over. God commanded them to take that lamb that had been slain, that the blood had been applied, and to roast it and to eat it, and for that to be a a perpetual statute through their generations to remember what God had done that night in Egypt. Listen to what it says in Exodus 12. 11. He says, thus shall ye eat it. He's talking to the children of Israel. He says, this is how I want you to eat the Passover. With your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And ye shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. The Lord's Passover. Now, let me make a fleeting statement here. Just passing statement. And then I want to get to what I really want to say here. The Passover was representative of the substitutionary death of that lamb for the children of Israel. Let me say this, our sin is the Lord's too. He has taken it, paid the price for it, and dealt with it in His own self. But when we think about the Passover being instituted on this night, this became a feature of Israel's worship. It was one of the seven feasts, that uh, one of the seven major feasts that the children of Israel would observe every single year. And I think the argument could be made, uh, certainly it compared to the, the Day of Atonement, it seems as though it is almost the most prominent feast 
of all of them that was given. In other words, it was associated with their worship. Now, what does it say here? It says it is the Lord's Passover. Let me say this tonight. Our world is the Lord's and our wealth is the Lord's. But if we're a child of God, our worship is the Lord's as well. It is His worship. In other words, not just the worship of Him, but the worship itself belongs to Him. Now, what does that do for us? How does that inform how we live? Well, I would say this, number one tonight. Because our worship is the Lord's. When we worship God, when we come into the house of God and we're worshiping Him, it's not just that we are worshiping Him, but it's that the worship that we participate in, it belongs to Him. He owns that worship. Therefore, number one, it's His right to dictate the proper manner of worship. Notice what it says here. Thus shall ye eat it. God says, don't just eat it any old way you want. I'm going to tell you how you eat the Passover. Can I say that worship, if it is to be biblical, must be biblical in its manner? Uh, it's not enough to say, well, this is how I worship God. I, at the risk of sounding rude, uh, God don't care how you want to worship Him. It's not interesting to Him. It's not important to Him because it is His worship. We don't get to decide how we worship God. If we do, we're really not worshiping God, we're worshiping self. Because it is His worship, doesn't it just make sense that He ought to be able to be the one to decide how that worship is? I've been telling, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I don't know if I should do this or not, but half the things I do I'm not real sure about anymore. But I, you know, we, we've been talking with, uh, with, with Hannah and Stephen about them getting married, you know, and, and um, we're, I'm, I just hope Stephen don't blow it. I'll be honest with you. I'm really praying for him. Um, but, you know, we, we've been talking and, and my wife's been talking to him and they've been planning things and wedding things and talking and all this and that. And I basically only have one thing that I've really tried to echo over and over again. And that is to look at, at, at young Miss Hannah here and say, your wedding is your day. It's your day. You get to decide how things go. Uh, it is your wedding day. It's not your friend's wedding day. It's not your mom or your mother-in-law's wedding day. It's, it's not even Stephen's wedding day. Nobody cares about him. It is your wedding day. And so because it is your wedding day, you get to decide. If you want your bride's way, it may, it's wearing, you know, one blue shoe and one black shoe. Whatever it is, it's your day. Uh, I believe that. You, you might not believe that, although if you men better be careful not amen in me on that or you might get in trouble. Um, because it is her day, she gets to decide how that day is going to go. Uh, it, it wouldn't be proper for, you know, other people whose wedding day it is not to get to decide everything about the wedding day. A lot of times that's how it works out uh, in a lot of situations, but that wouldn't be appropriate, would it? Because it's her wedding day. And therefore, the people that are involved in it, I really ain't preaching at nobody. I'm trying to make a point here about the Bible. I feel like y'all are looking at me like I'm up here preaching at somebody over something. I'm not. I'm trying to make a point here. Uh I feel like very often it we would think it inappropriate if she had to defer to a hundred different people on it because it's her wedding day. It shouldn't matter what other people desire or think about it, you know, budget with withstanding, uh, because it's her wedding day. Now, why is it that we look at God and say, God, I know it's your worship, but I get to decide everything about it. I get to decide what the music's like. I get to decide what the dress is like. I, I get to decide what the preaching is like. I, I get to decide what the giving is like. Don't sound to me like it's much of God's worship in the first place if man's deciding every single little detail about it. 
I would say this, because it's it's the Lord's worship, it's His right to dictate the proper manner. But then I would say this, number two, because it is His worship, because He is God, because He is infinite in His, in his knowledge, He is omniscient, it is His right to demand proper motives. In other words, it's God's prerogative to look at our worship and determine whether He'll accept or not our worship based upon the manner of it, but also based upon the motive of it. In other words, if God was to look at what I do for Him and say, you're not doing it for me, you're doing it for somebody else, I have no right to look at God and say, well, you just need to accept what I do for you no matter what my motives are. No, listen, He's God. And if we want that worship to be meaningful in His eyes, and by the way, if we don't care whether it's meaningful in His eyes, let's just rip up our Bibles and go be godless infidels. I mean, if, if we're not going to care what God thinks about what we're doing, let's just quit pretending and go out and, and eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. But if we're going to say we're Bible believers, it better matter to us what God thinks about how we worship Him. It's the Lord's worship. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17. Uh, our wealth is the Lord's. Our world is the Lord's. Our worship is the Lord's. But in 1 Samuel 17, we find David, the young man, standing in the valley of Elah, and speaking to uh, the giant Goliath, of course, for 40 days, Goliath had been coming out every day, boasting himself against the God of Israel, mocking the God of Israel. And now young David steps out into the battlefield to stand on behalf of the Lord and for the Lord. And uh, listen to what he says to Goliath in verse 47. This is familiar. You know what I'm about to say before I say it. You could probably quote it. But David looks at the, the giant and he says, All this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hands. And not only is our world and wealth and worship the Lord's, but our warfare is the Lord's. As a child of God, the battles that we face are not our own. They belong to God. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, what did it mean for David? Number one, it meant this, that that battle was the Lord's to fight. It was not uh, on David's responsibility to win the victory that day, but it was God's responsibility to fight that battle. I think this is something that is really lost in the very activist-minded society that we live in today. Uh, we live in a society today where, you know, there's still some sort of, of facade of, of political interest in people's self-will, although that is very quickly being stripped away. Uh, but we have this notion that when things aren't going our way, the best thing to do is to gather a group of people together and uh, make a bunch of noise and sign a petition and send a letter. i got news for you. I don't, I don't think many people in Washington care what we want one way or the other. It's not that they don't know. It's that generally speaking, they don't care. They do know they're just not interested in what we have to say. Uh, this is, uh, and by the way, I'm not saying it's inappropriate to let our voice be heard in the proper channels that our society provides for us. I don't think God begrudges that. But in as much as we as believers are seeking to find footing to stand upon, a, a, a place of defense or refuge, we need to recognize where that comes from. And it does not come from having representation in Congress, even if that were possible. It doesn't come from having some sort... I mean, listen, I, I, I treasure the Constitution. Uh, I, I'm just afraid nobody else does anymore. Uh, I don't know that we can look to the Constitution as being the thing that gives us safety and gives us peace. I, I think it's a wonderful, precious, beautiful, glorious document, uh, but nobody else seems to feel that way. But I will tell you this, uh, God will be our refuge, God will be our bulwark, God will be our haven, irrespective of what man thinks. 
The battle is the Lord's and it's the Lord's to fight. But number two, listen to what David says. He says, he will give you into our hands. The battle is his to finish. Not just his to fight, but his to finish. This is hard for us because if you're like me, when I'm going through a battle, I want God to hurry up and whoop everybody. That's just my general disposition and attitude. I, I am uh, I am a proponent of a speedy end to conflict, whatever that is. Uh, and I just wish God would just hurry up and just whoop all my enemies, right? Uh, but there are times that I must wait on God. There are times, uh, and, and just to be honest, I, because it's not my battle, I don't get to decide how or when it ends. That's not easy. I wish I could just come in and say, well, I'm tired of fighting this fight. I'm tired of it being this way. So it's just going to be over because I say it's going to be over. The only way you get to do that is if you quit. If you're not willing to quit and it's not your battle to fight, then you must leave it in God's hands to finish. I know that's not palatable. I know our flesh don't like that. That's why we're always tempted to quit. Uh, But unless we're willing to take the coward's way out and quit on God, and I hope none of us are willing to do that, then we must recognize that it's not just God's responsibility to protect us and to fight that battle, but it will end in God's timing. And we need to be comfortable with that. Turn with me one final place. Well, two final places. Well, maybe six or seven. We'll see. Turn to Psalms 22 tonight. Psalms 22. So what have we said? Well, we've said that our world is the Lord's. God owns everything. Uh, Because of that, our wealth is the Lord's. And He deserves the first and the best of everything we have. Our worship is the Lord's and therefore it's His right to dictate the proper manner and to demand proper motives. Our warfare is the Lord's. It's His battle to fight and His battle to finish. But notice what the psalmist says in Psalms 22, verse 27. Uh, David says, and by the way, this is a messianic psalm. Uh, you, you probably know that already. This is the psalm that begins, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Uh, the, this is a messianic psalm uh, prophesying of uh, the... Uh, life, death, burial, resurrection, and coming kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen to what it says in verse 27. It says, all the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord. So this is talking about the millennial kingdom, of course. It says, and all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he is the governor among the nations. Let me read one more verse with you to pair with that. I'm going to make two statements about it and be done tonight. You don't have to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 22, listen to what Paul says. He says, He that is called in the Lord, being a servant, is the Lord's freeman. Likewise also, he that is called being free is Christ's servant. I'm going to sum both those up by saying this. Not only is our world and our wealth and our worship and our warfare the Lord's, but our will is the Lord's. What are the two illustrations that are given here regarding God and His people? Well, number one, we could say this. The psalmist speaking of the Messiah's coming kingdom. He reveals to us that we are His subjects and therefore we owe Him our loyalty. He's our King. And as such, we owe Him our fealty, our loyalty, our allegiance, our duty. We have no right to ride under any banner but Christ's cross. I'm going to say that again. I think I just said more than you might have heard. Uh, We, being the Lord's servant, being His subject, have no right to ride under any banner but His cross. Whatever other associations we may have in this world, whatever other uh, allegiances we may be permitted in liberty, in in grace to, to maintain, we need to understand that all of those things in our life must be subservient 
to that one singular duty and loyalty, and that's to the Lord Jesus Christ. He, above anything else, should command our allegiance. We are His subjects, and we owe Him our loyalty. Therefore, uh, and, and listen, I've got opinions. I got I got more opinions than I got sins sometimes. I, I got opinions about things, about all kinds of things. And I got there's people I think are good guys, and people I think are bad guys. There's people I think would fix things, and people I think would make things worse. Uh, but at the end of the day, all of those things should fade into the background of what is my number one allegiance and loyalty, and that's to Jesus Christ. I'm a Christian above all other things and all other associations. Uh, not only are we his subjects and owe him our loyalty, but notice what Paul says there. He says, he that is called in the Lord, and I'm called in the Lord, and you're called in the Lord. Uh, if, if uh, Listen, uh, if, if you've come to the Lord, it's because you're called to the Lord. And I'm not talking about Calvinism tonight. I'm saying everybody that's been born again has been called by the gospel of Jesus Christ and has answered that call, that call that goes out to all men to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore we are called unto Him. What does that mean then? Uh, he says, He that is called in the Lord, being a servant, is the Lord's freeman. We belong to Him. He's purchased us. He's bought us. It goes on to say uh, that we are Christ's servant. I would say it this way and I'll be done. We are His servants. And therefore we owe Him our labor. Our labor. We don't have a right to live our life our way. I want to say that again. I, I don't know if your flesh needs to hear it, but mine does. We don't have a right to live life our way. How dare we when he paid for us? How dare we? I mean, we don't have people say, well, it's my life. Well, now, whoa, wait a minute. Lost man can talk that way and God's still going to judge him for it, but at least I understand it. But if you got born again, then you need to understand you don't gave up the right to any of that talk. We don't have a right to look at God and say it's my life. We lost that right. We lost that right when He bought us. Because we're bought with a price. Therefore, you say, preacher, what is the Lord's? Everything. Everything you see and everything you are and everything you'll ever do is the Lord's. So I want to ask you this. Is He getting what belongs to Him out of your life? Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. I'm just going to give you an opportunity. If God may have dealt with you about something in your heart, in your mind, uh, I'm going to give you an opportunity to find a place at this altar and deliver it up unto Him because it belongs to Him. Hey, whatever that is, that time in your life, that time belongs to Him. Those treasures in your life, they belong to Him. Those talents, they belong to Him. Those energies, they belong to Him. Those labors, they belong to Him. Whatever it is, it belongs to Him. You say, preacher, I'm going to go down and give God something that I hold real dear, that, that's precious, that I've got. No, all you're going to give Him is what already belongs to Him. But the question then is not, are we going to be a giver, but are we going to be a robber? Are we going to give God what belongs to Him? Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.